Okay, so got it. Classroom experience, and then there's the homeschooling co-op, which will all be a classroom experience is a much um, more relaxed. Okay, got it. There's a lot of people here today, right? Yes. Well, there's supposed to be this special member meeting to talk about the budget. Oh, the member meeting. Ah, that's right. That brings people in. Okay. Oh, yeah. Nice. Let's see how the sound is doing. Uh oh. My mic is hot. Someone's saying. Oh, my mic? Okay, let me turn it
Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Schofield Lega. My pronouns are per and pers, short for person. Nope, apparently we're not quite ready. Hold on one moment, please. Okay, I, oh, there we are. Now we have volume. Welcome. Good morning to everyone. We're glad you're here with us at the Washington Ethical Society. I am Karen Schofield Leka. My pronouns are per and pers, short for person, and I am the officiant this morning. Wes is one community unified across time and space, gathering for these Sunday platforms to affirm our values and commit to a better world. So I want to welcome those of you who are here in the hall, those who joined via Zoom, and those who are watching the recording later. If you are on Zoom, please check the chat for a welcome and various tips from Peter Bishop, who is today's Zoom chat usher. And if you are here in the hall and would like an assistive listening device, you can check in with the sound team at the back for that. If you are visiting with us today, we have a whole cadre of visitors here, but maybe some in the regular seats also, please step by the, stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. And if you're visiting online, either now or later, you are invited to send an email to Maceo at M-A-C-E-O-T at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which is available at tiny.cc slash westconnects. I'll now read a few of the greetings that folks have written in the Zoom chat. And if you're at home, this is a great time to get a candle to light during our upcoming candle lighting. So let's see what we see in the chat. So they say, good morning, Karen and Wes. Greetings from Northern Frederick County, Maryland, which is where Jeff Mehal is this morning. Rajesh says, good morning, Wes. Beautiful day. Judy Myers says, hello, wonderful people. Love from Judy and Randy in Columbia. We've got a good morning from Laura DeShulo and also from Adam Briskin Limehouse. So indeed, welcome to those who are online and to all who are here this morning. It is indeed good to connect and share this time together. Our opening words this morning are Nikki Giovanni's poem, Rosa Parks. This is for the Pullman porters who organized when people said they couldn't and carried the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender to the black Americans in the South so they would know they were not alone. This is for the Pullman porters 
who helped Thurgood Marshall go south and come back north to fight the fight that resulted in Brown v. Board of Education. Because even though Kansas is west, and even though Topeka is the birthplace of Gwendolyn Brooks, who wrote the powerful, the Chicago Defender sends a man to Little Rock, it was the Pullman porters who whispered to the traveling men, both the blues men and the race men, so that they would know what was going on. This is for the Pullman porters who smiled as if they were happy and laughed when some folks were around and who silently rejoiced in 1954 when the Supreme Court announced its nine to zero decision that separate is inherently unequal. This is for the Pullman porters who smiled and welcomed a 14 year old boy onto their train in 1955. They noticed his slight limp that he tried to disguise with a doo-wop walk. They noticed his stutter and probably understood why his mother wanted him out of Chicago during the summer when school was out. 14-year-old black boys with limps and stutters are apt to try and prove themselves in dangerous ways when mothers aren't around to look after them. So this is for the Pullman porters who looked over that 14-year-old while the train rolled the reverse of the Blues Highway from Chicago to St. Louis to Memphis to Mississippi. This is for the men who kept him safe. And if Emmett Till had been able to stay on a train all summer, he would have maybe grown a bit of a paunch, certainly lost his hair, probably would have worn bifocals and bounced his grandchildren on his knee, telling them about his summer riding the rails. But he had to get off the train and ended up in Money, Mississippi, and was horribly, brutally, inexcusably, and unacceptably murdered. This is for the Pullman porters who, when the sheriff was trying to get the body secretly buried, got Emmett's body on the northbound train, got his body home to Chicago, where his mother said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And this is for all the mothers who cried. And this is for all the people who said never again. And this is all about also Rosa Parks, whose feet were not so tired. It had been, after all, an ordinary day until the bus driver gave her the opportunity to make history. This is about Mrs. Rosa Parks from Tuskegee, Alabama, who was also the field secretary of the NAACP. This is about the moment Rosa Parks shouldered her cross, put her worldly goods aside, was willing to sacrifice her life so that that young man in Money, Mississippi, who had been so well protected by the Pullman porters, would not have died in vain. When Mrs. Park said no, a passionate movement was begun. No longer would there be a reliance on the law. There was a higher law. When Mrs. Parks brought that light of hers to expose the evil of the system, the sun came and rested on her shoulders, bringing the heat and the light of truth. Others would follow Mrs. Parks, Four young men in Greensboro, North Carolina would also say no. Great voices would be raised singing the praises of God and exhorting us to forgive those who trespass against us. 
but it was the Pullman porters who safely got Emmett to his granduncle, and it was Mrs. Rosa Parks who could not stand that death. And in not being able to stand it, she sat back down. Today's opening song is performed by our guest musicians, DC Labor Chorus, and the Love Songs medley is by their accompanist, Steve Jones, who is also the composer and lyricist.
Alza. <laughs> it is really fabulous to have the DC Labor Chorus here on a Sunday morning with us. They're actually here often because they rehearse here at WES. Um, but if that fabulous piece just gives you a little taste of things to come, it is part of a larger work called Love Songs for the Liberation Wars. It is a, uh, a jazz opera, am I characterizing that correctly, that Steve has written. And they are having a performance on Saturday May 6th at 7.30 p.m. at Silver Spring United Methodist Church, which is just up on Georgia Avenue. And so um, definitely check it out. I'm sure that the chorus can tell you more about it later this morning, um, but it would be really lovely to have all of us show up there for them as they have come here for us this morning. Each week we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. And if you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash read SOP. And you can read it here in person or make a recording that will be included in a future platform. Today's reader is Joe London. And Joe is a former chair and present fan of the Community Relations Committee, or CRC. And she sings with the chorus, and she is a member of the Safer Congregations team. And Joe's given us a little homework, and she suggests that we consult the appendices E and F of the West Bylaws if we want to know more about what that Safer Congregations team is. <laughs> Joe, the lectern is yours. <laughs> Hello, everyone. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thanks, Joe. And as Joe lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Let us enter now into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of yet the most recent um, mass shooting. There have been so many just in the last week. Um, and so we hold all of in our hearts in that way. I'm also mindful that this day is a historic anniversary 
In April 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested for leading protests in Birmingham, Alabama. And on April 16th, while still in jail, he wrote his applauded letter from a Birmingham jail. That was 60 years ago today. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation, a time to be still and to reflect. <clears throat> Begin by taking a full, deep breath and slowly exhale any distractions. Gently adjust your posture stretching mindful of others nearby and releasing any tension. And breathe. Close your eyes or soften your gaze. Let your mind slow down and breathe. From this place of quiet, reflect on these words from Lynn Unger. Breathe, breathe, said the wind. How can I breathe at a time like this when the air is full of the smoke of burning tires, burning lives? Just, Just breathe, the wind insisted. Easy for you to say if the weight of injustice is not wrapped around your throat, cutting off all air. I need you to breathe. I need you to breathe. Don't tell me to be calm when there are so many reasons to be angry, so much cause for despair. I didn't say to be calm, said the wind. I said to breathe. We're going to need a lot of air to make this hurricane together. We continue our meditation in silence and the music that follows. Thank you. 
No, 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 let them be. I don't I don't think they have an answer either. Um, it, it could be some, um, I see outside of the panelists, there's, oh no, someone else has gone on. There's 12 people, so. Uh, uh, are you able to see the hands of the people? Yeah, who do you want to see? Like, I want to see if, if I just, what I just did. Is your phone number, are you coming in through your phone number or your, I don't, your name's not on here. No, I'm trying to get back in. Yeah. Trang is calling me right now. Oh, my. Ooh. Today's reading is from The Black Maria by Arcelis Germay. And she writes this for Neil deGrasse Tyson, black astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium, who was born in 1958 in New York City. In his youth, deGrasse Tyson was confronted by police on more than one occasion when he was on his way to study stars. He wrote in the Center for Inquiry in 2007, I've known that I wanted to be, to do astrophysics since I was nine years old, a first visit to the Hayden Planetarium. So I got to see how the world around me reacted to my expression of these ambitions. And all I can say is the fact that I wanted to be a scientist, an astrophysicist was hands down the path of most resistance. Anytime I expressed this interest, teachers would say, don't you want to be an athlete? Or don't you want to... I wanted to become something that was outside of the paradigms of expectation of the people in power. And I look behind me and say, well, where are the others who might have been that? 
and they're not there. And I wonder, what is the thing along the tracks that I happened to survive and others did not, simply because of the forces that prevented it at every turn, at every turn? <clears throat> body of space, body of dark, body of light, the Skyview Apartments circa 1973, a boy is kneeling on the rooftop, a boy who, it is important to mention here, his skin is brown, prepares his telescope, the weights and rods to better see the moon. His neighbor, it is important to mention here that she is white, calls the police. Because she suspects the brown boy of something, she does not know what at first then turns with her looking his telescope into a gun, his duffel bag into a bag of objects thieved from the neighbor's houses, maybe even hers. And the police, it is important to mention here that statistically they are also white, arrive to find the boy who has been turned by now into the suspect on the roof with a long black lens, which is in his neighbor's mind a weapon and depending on who you are reading this, you know that the boy is in grave danger. And you might have known somewhere quiet in your gut, you might have worried for him in the white space between lines five and six, or maybe even earlier. And you might be holding your breath for him right now because you know this story. It's a true story though, Miraculously, in this version of the story anyway, the boy on the roof of the Skyview lives to tell the police that he is studying the night and moon and lives long enough to offer them, the cops, a view through his telescope's long black eye, which, if I'm spelling it out anyway, is the instrument he borrowed and the beautiful trouble he went through lugging it up to the roof to better see the leopard body of space speckled with stars and the moon far off. Much farther then, since I'm spelling this thing out, the distance between the white neighbor who cannot see the boy who is her neighbor, who in fact is much nearer to her than to the moon. The boy who wants to understand the large and gloriously unhuman mysteries of the galaxy the boy who, despite America, has not been killed by the murderous jury of his neighbor's imagination and wound. This poem wants only the moon in its hair and the boy on the roof. This boy on the roof of this poem with a moon in his heart. Inside my own body as I write this poem, my body is making a boy even as the radio calls out the Missouri Coroner's News, the Ohio Coroner's News, 2015. My boy will nod for his milk and close his mouth around the black eye of my nipple. We will survive. How did it happen? The boy, the cops, my body in this poem, my milk pulling down into droplets of light as the baby drinks and drinks them down into the body that is his own. See it, splayed and sighing as a star in my arms. Maybe he will be the boy who studies stars. 
Maybe he will be, say it, the boy on the coroner's table, splayed and spangled by an officer's lead, as if he too weren't made of a trillion glorious cells and sentences, trying to last. West Senior Leader Casey Slack is tomorrow is today's platform speaker, and I give the space to you, Casey. There is a thing that happens many months when faced with two themes, which I have chosen, I discover a third secret theme. This happens often in conversation with members of the community, with what comes up in other people in response to what I have said we will talk about. This month's official themes are resistance and global anti-blackness. But the secret third theme is language. The secret third theme is why these words? Why not these other words? And how do we use these words? There is a lot of anxiety around language in general in a world where how we talk about so much has shifted a lot in recent years. I know this conversation best from conversations around gender experience, around trans experience, but it is true that how we talk about race and racism is shifting in this country, in our progressive communities, in the world, and uh, that does not always feel very good for all of us. It is the case, I think, that we have all seen in progressive, liberal, radical, whatever you call them, spaces where somebody learns a word or a phrase, and then it is a weapon. Right? Then they have learned something you maybe don't quite know, and they are going to hit you upside the head with it as frequently as they can, making you feel as outside as maybe they once felt. I might be able to understand that behavior. Hell, I will cop to having engaged in that behavior myself. But it is not good behavior. It is not the behavior we hope to encourage in one another. It is not why I am giving you the words, the concepts that I am attempting to share and communicate with you about this month. There is content in all of these phrases that make us jumpy. White supremacy culture, that's one of those phrases that gets white people in particular real jumpy. I am not a white supremacist. What do you mean I am part of a culture? Well, like the baby fish to the mama fish, what is water? It is what is all around us, but the metaphor I prefer is that you are on 
a people mover, right, like in the airport. And it will drag you in the direction of white supremacy unless you make a different choice. You're on a cultural conveyor belt that leans that way. And while there are certainly people running that way, certainly people working to crank up the speed of the people mover, being on it compels you to move the other direction, to try to slow it down or throw a wrench in where you can. But it doesn't mean that you believe in it, right? Being in it does not mean that you chose to be in it. It means that you get to choose whether you're going to stand still and be moved that way anyway, whether you're going to run in the direction of oppression, or if you're going to grab hands and pull as many people the other way as you can. There is also some anxiety about the use of the word black. I'm again and still talking mostly to white people here. I get it. A lot of us grew up in contexts where that was not a word that you were to use. I, raised as I was by people whose concern for political correctness was negative, <laughs> have very clear memory of the first time I had a friend who told me that she was not African-American, but she was, in fact, black. She was Jamaican, and her personal understanding, we were both 16, so anybody's understanding of anything was, you know, 16, but her personal understanding was that if she was anything American, she was Jamaican American in the way that I might be called Czech American or German American. She wasn't from Africa directly, and thus she did not understand herself as African American. If you want to refer to my ethnic group, she said, call me black. I want to point out here that there is a big difference between blacks and black people. Right? That should be obvious. I'm just going to leave that right there. So this language can be uncomfortable, and the discomfort is part of the point. right? If you are sick and you take a medicine, Perhaps you have cancer and you are taking chemotherapy for that cancer. That is uncomfortable. The excising of the poison of our society is not always a comfortable experience. And though we are here to provide each other with comfort, absolutely, we are not here to not give each other medicine, right? One of the key rules of comedy is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that that is a key rule of public speaking, of community, of preaching, if you want to call it that. If you are black, I want you to hear that I am listening as much as I can, as deeply as I can. If you are white, I want you to get the medicine that we all need. I want you to have a friend in detoxifying to whatever degree is next. And friends, there is always more detoxifying to do. 
do not hear me speaking as though I have arrived and you have not. Not the case. For those of us who are, something else. Not everybody is white or black. Part of what I want to point to is the way that we are networked in a system, right? Where it is less important, actually, our own personal identity than how we participate or don't in a system that creates racism and anti-blackness. Language changes a lot. There's been a conversation among some of my internet friends recently about how when we were children, if you said, hey, to an adult, they would often respond, is for horses, <laughs> half as a joke and half as an admonition to not talk to adults like that. I think about this a lot. Most of my emails begin, hey, so-and-so, or hi, so-and-so, I am not much for hello. And I worry, sometimes, that an older person will read it as disrespect when it is not meant that way. But today, hey is a pretty normal way to say hello. Language changes all the time, and it is worth it to practice holding on to it lightly. It is a tool, a tool that can be used really poorly, a tool that can be used to beat people up, to cast people out. But it is also a tool that can be used to draw the circle wider, to provide ourselves with knowledge that helps combat that which we were enculturated to. So our secret third theme is language. And having given that sort of disclaimer, I'd like to introduce to some of you and probably just re-communicate to many of you the concept of anti-blackness. In a June 2022 piece titled Anti-Blackness Slash Colorism, which is part of a larger body of work titled Toward Anti-Bigotry, published by Boston University, Genevieve Williams Connery, the executive director of Afro Resistance and an associate professor at the NYU Wagner School of Public Service. Antoinette M. Landor, a PhD and associate professor and Millsap professor of diversity and multicultural studies at the University of Missouri. Kaiwen Townsend Riley, a member of the Black Youth Project 100, a poet and a graduate assistant at Western Illinois University and Jason D. Williamson, the executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at the NYU School of Law, and an adjunct clinical professor at NYU School of Law. Goodness, that's a lot of people with a lot of titles. They wrote to define what anti-blackness is. In their words, anti-blackness is defined as the beliefs, attitudes, actions, practices, and behaviors of individuals and institutions that devalue, minimize, and marginalize the full participation of black people, visibly or perceived to be of African descent. It is the systematic denial of black humanity. It is the systematic denial of black humanity and dignity which makes black people effectively ineligible for full citizenship. The anti-blackness paradigm positions blackness as inherently problematic, 
rather than recognizing the long, rich, and diverse history of black people throughout the African diaspora, and acknowledging that black communities across the United States and the world have been severely disadvantaged as a result of historical and contemporary systemic racism. Anti-blackness is also closely related to anti-darkness or colorism, as it amplifies and prioritizes proximity to whiteness. Colorism, the term used to describe the unequal treatment of and discrimination against individuals based on their skin tone, is rooted in and perpetuates white supremacy and racism by privileging and upholding Eurocentric beauty standards. Eurocentric physical features, for example, lighter skin, narrower nose, straighter hair, are afforded greater value and considered more desirable than Afrocentric physical features. For example, darker skin, broader nose, more coarse hair. Thus, the closer to whiteness and further away from blackness individuals are, the more privilege and power they are assigned in society, and in essence, the more power they have. They also note that black people refers to descendants of people from the African diaspora, including but not limited to African Americans, and quote James Baldwin as saying, the reason people think it is important to be white is that they think it is important to not be black. I think they do a very good job in just two paragraphs of getting to the core of why this is a useful frame. Anti-blackness speaks more clearly to a global phenomenon than just the word racism does, right? In 2014, uh, Benjamin Andre, chief number one possible greatest rapper alive, in my personal opinion, Andre 3000, performed at Lilith Fair in a jumpsuit that read, across cultures, darker people suffer most. Why? This is the summation of the question being answered by the theory of anti-blackness. Across cultures, darker people suffer more. Why? Anti-blackness is also related to, but not entirely the same as recent African ancestry. Some of this is because the colonization of Africa means that there are a lot of white people who have a recent ancestor who grew up in Africa. Elon Musk likes to use this to duck around criticism sometimes, but a white South African is, well, I think we all know how that happened. <laughs> the Dalit people, who comprise the lowest rung of the traditional caste system in India, are typically darker skinned than their higher caste contemporaries. And around the world, you see cultures of people who are darker skinned being treated worse by their governments. You see this in the Australian government's treatment of the Aboriginal people, 
Next in New Zealand's relatively positive treatment of the Maori people who are a little, little lighter skinned. A dear friend of mine who is a dark skinned black man grew up in Southeast Asia and remembers clearly going to islands where people were as dark as him and shocked that an American could be that color. Because an American in the global consciousness is white. And so if you think about the way Americanness is privileged, you get a piece of how this becomes a global caste system. Companies like Dove continue to sell bleaching creams around the world. Creams with bleach in them intended to be put on the skin to actually physically make your skin lighter. They are sold under names like Fair and Lovely. At the exact same time as Dove and its contemporaries sell diversity and body positivity to an American audience. The anti-blackness frame also points to colorism and pulls back some of the obfuscation present in the broad term people of color. That doesn't mean that people of color isn't a useful frame sometimes. In the United States, all people of color experience racism. But not all people of color experience anti-blackness. And while people of color broadly cannot perpetrate racism, lacking the amount of social power to do that, they can participate in anti-blackness. In fact, black people can participate in anti-blackness. And overall, anti-blackness points to a creation of a gradiated hierarchical system that defines whiteness in opposition to blackness and puts us all on a scale from white to black. I don't believe in hierarchy. I think the things that we believe together call us to demolish as much hierarchy as we are able to. That doesn't mean getting rid of leadership. We are allowed to choose leaders. We are allowed to choose to lead or follow. But the idea that some people inherently lead, some people inherently should lead, and some people inherently should follow is dangerous, is deadly. So I give you this framework, maybe for the first time, maybe underlined, maybe for the 20th time, and you are tired of this. And I ask a question of myself and of you. I will answer it, but I'm asking it of you too. What do we do with this? We come together not around creed, but around the choice of our deeds. So while we can be informed by any theory that suits, and I think this one does, the question winds up being, all right, what do I do differently or continue to do or stop doing in my life given this information? Well, I have some answers. First, we identify the values we are talking about here. 
The values are the inherent worth and dignity of every person, of seeing each person as an end in to themselves rather than a means to an end. It is really easy to conceptualize some people as necessarily a means to an end when you have built a strict hierarchy and always given servile jobs to people with certain skin tones. Eliciting the best in one another means accepting criticism, means letting ourselves be wrong sometimes, means working to get the poison out of ourselves where we can, and reminding each other to take the medicine, reminding each other of who we can be when we choose to let go of the things we were taught that do not serve us, that do not serve community, that do not serve a future where love and justice really do transcend borders. I've been learning about Felix Adler's ethical manifold recently, and I have come to have what is certainly an in, imperfect understanding of it. But what I understand of the ethical manifold most clearly is that it is a call to find ourselves in harmony. It is a call to adjust the notes that we sing into the world so that our chords are beautiful instead of harmful. So that we sing together but how many of you have sung in a chorus before in your life? Cool. There is a tendency among sopranos, sorry friends. <laughs> there is a tendency among sopranos to be the star, right? We have opera diva history. I used to be a soprano. Testosterone has changed that. There is a tendency to want to be the star so much that if you are out of key, you expect everybody to shift into yours. Right? But what if, what if, what if instead we tuned to the bass? What might that be like? What if instead we shared who we tuned to? if each time we sang together, there was a different person whose voice was the one that we were adjusting to. Living into harmony means noticing where our own lives, thoughts, implicit biases, inherited stuff, pull us out of harmony with people who have been put down, degraded, dehumanized for the tones they sing in, for the tones they exist in, for the ways they live their lives. Some of the actions might be to investigate your own biases. You can take an implicit bias test online. It is pretty interesting. 
It will show you images and words and give you two buttons to click. And at the end, it will suggest what your biases might be. Now, it is a computer program, and a computer program only knows so much. But it can give you kind of a hint as to where you lean and what you might want to look at. I have worked myself into a strange situation wherein I have an implicit bias towards black people. Every time I take those tests, I come up with a strong preference for darker-skinned people. In the world that I live in, I feel like that's okay, but I do sometimes need to check myself if I become initially irritated or aggressive with a fellow white person where that is actually not necessary. It can be interesting. You can learn more about the construction of whiteness in the United States. For example, how did Irish people become white? They were not originally. How did Italians become white? They were not originally. How did Polacks and Czechs and Hungarians become white? How did Russians become white? Are Russians white? More so, how did people from Egypt become white? I mean that both in the, if you watch many old movies about Egypt, it is full of white people, and in that Arab peoples check white on the United States Census. How did that happen? There are books. How the Irish Became White is a good place to start. We need to accept criticism. We need to resist the urge to be the most right. Resisting the urge to be the most right you might have heard by now is one of my core messages. And not because it's not something I struggle with. It is easy to get used to being the one who knows things, to being somebody who is the authority. And it becomes very hard when someone challenges that authority. It's okay. None of us is the most right. We can all take a breath and expand our perspective. We can hear an idea that is scary or unsettles what we've known about ourselves, and we can choose to grow instead of closing down. That doesn't mean you take in everything you're told as absolute fact without any further verification or research, but it does mean that you do the research. It does mean that you have the conversations, that you think, that you allow the space for what you have learned and experienced to be processed through the fire of thought. We have to accept that it won't be perfect. Literally anything, no thing is going to be perfect. You will never sing the song in the ideal way. We will never have a platform where nothing goes wrong, sorry. It's not Sunday if nothing goes wrong. It's not life if it's perfect. Living is messy. Being people is messy. Do it with a good heart. Do it open to being wrong. Do it ready to apologize when you need to and to stand up for yourself and others when you need to. In the core, 
the core thing to do, is to resist hierarchies everywhere that you can find them. Resist anything that says this person by virtue of birth or education or status or position is necessarily a better person. There is an argument, there is an argument going around the world that Clarence Thomas, because he is a graduate of an Ivy League judicial school, could not possibly be moving out of anything but pure intellect and commitment to the law. Friends. Friends. <laughs> that is just nobility remade for an ostensibly democratic society. The belief that people with better educations are necessarily more moral beings that is literally an aristocracy. It's a slightly more accessible aristocracy, slightly, but it is still one. There are things that people who never graduated from high school know that no number of degrees can teach you. There are things that working your way through community college teaches you that no amount of going to Harvard could ever hope to teach you and vice versa, though it's easier to acquire the knowledge of Harvard than it is the lived experience of paying your way, of fighting through life. There are things that teenagers know that I do not know, and things that octogenarians and nonagenarians know that I could not hope to. We all have knowledge that other people do not have, and we are best when we are sharing that when we are creating a harmony out of our various lived experiences, personal affectations, personal styles, and creating something beautiful, harmonious, and bigger than any of us on our own could be. We resist anti-blackness in part by remembering our own humanity and the humanity of each and every other person. The full, gritty, detailed, glorious, transcendent, dirty, disgusting reality of being people. All of us. Not the same, but together. Not in line, but in harmony. May it be so. And we just need to take a moment and continue to absorb. Um, we can do that in just a moment while I just, just decided it wants to look, go this way. Um, we are going to have some music in a moment that will give us some time to reflect on this and in other ways um, around the theme of the morning. And then following that, we'll have a chance for people to respond. So you might spend this time thinking about what resonated for you in this 
presentation this morning. And you'll be able to either come to the mic or write into the chat um, and share briefly with the collective. But for now, we'll listen to the chorus. Yeah. 
So this is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates with our own personal experience. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you're watching the recording later. If you're here in person, you can come to the microphone and share your brief comments so that others may also share. And I will start by seeing what we have heard from our Zoom friends. Let's see. Okay, it has just been re- oh, here we go. Rajesh says, Casey, delighted that you broadened the conversation to include Dalits in India. The treatment of Dalits is India's brand of multi-millennial slavery. Caste discrimination is alive and well in India and even among Indian Americans who live in the US. Anti-blackness and color hierarchy is widespread among people of color, as you said, the same for the Roma in Europe. Jeff Michal adds, wow, what a platform. Thank you, Casey and DC Labor Chorus. Thank you for the mention of Pullman Porters. In 1937, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was recognized by the Pullman Company after a 12-year battle. Its leader, A. Philip Randolph, was fighting for civil rights when Martin Luther King Jr. was wearing knee pants. <laughs> Um, Beth, do you want to come to the microphone? I encourage you to start with your name, your pronouns, and brief comments, because we see you have a number of people who would like to share this morning. Beth, um, I really, uh, for me, the heart of resistance involves action and organizing. And it's why I so treasure the DC Labor course, because they are there at so many key events. Um, I have chosen to be very active in the uh, Montgomery County Lynching Memorial Project, where we face um, our very painful history and we organize events and educational opportunities, including in the public school system. And it's black and white people working together on our theory is only by facing history can we work towards reconciliation and healing? And I really hope that Wes will, we have some history of doing this, and I hope we continue to take active stands, whether it's on mass incarceration or there's so many, many affordable housing through the interfaith network, so many things we could be doing together. And I hope as individuals and as a community, we will do that. Thank you. We're a country of immigrants. I know my, my grandparents on my father's side, uh, one, uh, his father's family came over in the 1870s. My grandmother, his mother, uh, came over in the 40s. She married a complete German from Illinois. I'm taking a course on slavery uh, in an adult education course. Uh, anyway, um, it came up that African Americans mainly came over 
in the 1600s, 1700s, and uh, so that most African Americans actually are more American than us Euro European Americans. They've been here longer. Good point. This is Ross. I wanted to thank the DC Labor Chorus. Steve Jones, your music is amazing and your voices are amazing. Here at West, we don't really do labor. Uh, we're mostly professionals and academic types, and there's not really a connection to labor. So I can count, I've been here since the late 90s. On one hand, the platforms that we've had that talk about working class people or labor or the labor movement. So maybe in the future, we can get some information from you of a speaker or two and kind of go into labor. I'd love to see the Philip Randolph references and poem and all that. But um, in terms of language, I wanted to push back a little bit because language is really important of who's saying it and what it means. And so I did was taken aback a little bit about the reference to cancer and then those who will administer the antidote to cancer. And so I think what that is saying in terms of white supremacy culture is that we are all infected with this poison and that the people who are going to inoculate us in the future are these people that we didn't necessarily choose, but they've taken it upon themselves to enlighten us. Some of them will, be, will do exactly that. And some of them are very, I've found, very performative and more interested in how they see themselves in the world. So I think it's a cautionary thing. But a couple things um, just as far as language, and you didn't address Afro-pessimism, which I thought was important, because in, in your note to the community, and this is a big topic, not specifically that one, but you, um, you said that you encourage the members to learn about movements for black liberation, which is great, and you may uh, not have been aware or taught about MOVE, a Philadelphia collective which combined communal living, revolutionary thought, and dedication to animal rights in their work before being bombed from their homes, which was many of us that are old enough to remember that in Philadelphia. Mayor Good dropped a bomb, ordered a bomb to be dropped, and a block or two were leveled as a result of that. But MOVE was a, a, um, a cult that abused their children, that is not worth emulating. And there's a lot of information out there to look at. The same with Afro-pessimism. The link that you sent out, because I don't know much about it, I have heard reference to Afro-pessimism, was a link to the, a review of one of the four founders of Afro-pessimism movement to the book. So it was reviewed by a black reviewer, Vince Cunningham in The New Yorker. And here's just a couple of things from that, and sorry to be going so long. So this is the, a quote from the author, not from the reviewer. Wilderson is the name. Um, the spectacle of black death is essential to the mental health of the world. Something to sit with. Blackness is coterminous with slaveness, he writes. And civil society as we know it requires this category of non-person to exist. Emancipation is a myth. Another Wilderson quote, the narrative arc of the slave who is black is not an arc at all, but a flat line. 
So this is someone who came from an academic background. His parents taught college. He, you know, lived in Berkeley and a bunch of different places. He lived in the upscale neighborhood of Kenwood near the Mondale Mansion. Um, he was admitted to Dartmouth. And so the reviewer actually, in reading the book, uh, said, my own intermittent trouble swallowing the story, which is the book that he had written, made me feel like a race trader more than once. Um, essentially, he was saying, nothing really has changed ever. Black people still occupy the position of slaves. He also served as a stockbroker for a while. So I think, my, I guess my... Um, my trouble with this is that I think we have to be careful about the information that we have. And not all of this I don't consider positive, I don't consider it critical thinking, and I don't consider it ethical culture. Your platform was very, very good, and I thought the definition of Afro, of anti-blackness was very, very good, and you spent a lot of time talking about the honorifics, which later on you kind of said, well, that's not important, but it is important because people pay attention to those names. So, thank you. I'm Laura, her, hers. Um, I wanted to go back to the beginning of platform, um, as well as thanking you for my therapy session today. <laughs> It, was, it felt like a combination of a month of therapy, a graduate course, and a community gathering of learning. Having said that, earlier, um, Martin Luther King's 1963 encounter in the South was talked about. I want to mention another encounter Martin Luther King had, twice in 1958 and 1959. He led with the usual crowd around him, Randolph being one of the biggest ones, the youth marches for integrated schools. Yes, right down the road at the Washington Monument, twice in 1958, 1958 and 1959. I was there in 1959. It was an awakening for me the little Jewish Long Island kid from New York coming down on a very fancy bus. Betty Chia was also there from the same area. She did not come down on a fancy bus. She came down on a school bus. We lived in different areas of Long Island, 20 minutes apart. I bring that up because so much of what we encounter with racism is so old and we're so, well, me and my generation anyway, we're so ignorant, so incredibly, and, and what you were talking about in the inoculation of the acculturation of what we experience and what our first reactions are most of the time. is it, it, To me, it's overwhelming and I appreciate your breaking some of that down to what can we do about it for ourselves. The other thing I wanted to mention is Tyson was not the first black American to be an astronomer. Benjamin Banneker was in the late 1700s, a self-taught 
free black person who worked with Lafayette and Lafon to create DC. He was a genius and is celebrated at the museum, go see him. But more than that, read about him. An amazing, amazing guy. I'm Denise, she, her. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially being part of a community that is not bound by a specific belief in something, is that we kind of have the freedom from inherited beliefs about how the world is supposed to be. There's no real like fixed truth for us, free from any sort of a religious belief, but we do have the power and the responsibility to shape that world for how we think it should be. Um, and this is a little bit unrelated, a little detour, but this morning when Casey mentioned how it's not a Sunday if something doesn't go wrong, and <laughs> I was thinking about this morning, we have a new tech team member. Welcome, Eric. You probably think we're all crazy. <laughs> Things were a little behind today, um, as usual. You know, we were not quite as ready as we wanted to be at 1030, but the chorus was warming up and everybody was filing in and we weren't on time. We weren't right, but it was beautiful. I stood in the back corner and just watched everybody coming in with the chorus singing. It was hard not to dance. And who gets to decide what right is, what perfect is? I think it's hard. I've been struggling with it. But once you let go of that idea of everything must be a certain way, you open yourself up to the beautiful mistakes that happen. What a perfect opening to hear we should open ourselves up to the mistakes, because this is an Irish, old traditional Irish song. There's a whole tradition of Sean Nose singing. The Irish have their own language. Most people don't know that. The, English was imposed upon them, and Sean Nose means old ways, and it's a it's a whole um, style that doesn't include instruments because the history, I believe, although I should check this before I say it again, was that the Irish, that instruments were taken away, um, and so they developed this ornamental style of singing, and since the message to this is open the door, it seems perfect for where we are. <clears throat> Open the door softly, I've something to tell you, dear. Open it up no wider than the crack upon the floor. Open the door softly, I've something to tell you, dear. Warm summer grasses have whispered it in your ear. Skeins of shining water ask you patiently to hear. Tall, lonely timbers have taught it to the deer. Sad winds in autumn will tell you as they pass by. While he's flying eastward, leave their music in the sky. Listen at evening and answer the wild birds cry. Open 
the door softly. I've something to tell you, dear. Open it up no wider than the crack upon the floor. Open the door softly. I've something to tell you, dear. Shinny. As an Irish American, I can only say A small bird sat on it. Ah, sorry, it's a drinking song. Uh, uh, my name is Colum, which is the second Irish saint in, in, after St. Patrick, uh, the one who founded Christianity in Scotland. And uh, it means in Latin, dove. Uh, Colum, like the District of Columbia, or the country of Columbia, uh, he took the Bible, the Book of Kells, uh, from Ireland to uh, Scotland on the little isle of Iona. Long story short, he gets some credit, maybe, uh, for saving uh, Christianity, in effect, uh, because he kept the Bible. Uh, unbeknownst to many, one of the reasons he left Ireland was because a little monk looked through the keyhole and saw him copying the book and took his case to the king. And the Irish king ruled against him, ruling to every cow its calf, to every book its copy. It's the first case of copyright, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, so uh, there was a little war, 3,000 people died. He uh, unfortunately, uh, felt quite guilty, took 12 uh, people with him and went to Ireland, and subsequently uh, that's where Macbeth and other uh, Scottish kings are buried. Long story short, they founded monasteries throughout Western Europe and saved Christianity in effect because uh, the Black Death or the plague killed so many people in Europe, and they had in their monasteries uh, the Bible. Long story short, language. Uh, evidently, in Africa, the favorite color is what? It's on the top of your head. It's green. And it's an interesting approach uh, because your talk was looking at blackism and colorism, if you will. Uh, my, uh, my point here as an anthropologist after 20 years at the World Bank, uh, I would suggest uh, perhaps that our, your proposal perhaps could be uh, 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 greatened, if you will, if we could uh, look to African communities and uh, peoples and tribes uh, who, by the way, like the Irish and the Scots-Irish were, or many are, matrilineal. Uh, my, uh, as uh, my father used to say, you always know who your mother is. Your father could be the postman. Now go do your homework. Uh, long story short, uh, that picture on the dollar bill uh, of uh, Mr. Washington, the painting was saved by Dolly Madison, whose uh, uh, husband, of course, inherited the slaves uh, uh, second, am I right? Third president, 
when the British came and burned the building down the street on 16th, you know, the White House, and that painting, which I think is the same one on your dollar bill, uh, was saved by an Ibu, uh, because the slave who uh, took the painting was, was an Ibu. Long story short, uh, we don't have the language. Uh, just like Eskimos have multiple words uh, for snow, African communities have many, many, many words for the different parts of their community. Uh, mothers, brothers, daughter, we call them cousins. They can marry them or not, depending on their communities. So my suggestion, my green suggestion, my Irish suggestion, if you will, is that we look to the mother and we develop uh, a different language for color uh, that is more colorful in effect, uh, so that race is not defined by black and white, but by the various uh, colors that it is in real life. Thank you, sir. Good morning. My name is Sonia and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I wanted to share some reflections I had on colors. Um, I loved rainbows growing up. I painted them anytime I could. And I kind of realized as I was growing up that I was being made a color and made a culture um, from African parents um, that were making me one color and um, others around me who are making me a different shade of black, if you will. Have you ever um, tried to put two black, uh, like a top and a bottom together, and you realize they're different shades of black? <laughs> um, I realized that was what was happening. And um, I also realized, well, what am I doing? Um, who are the white people? Who are these people and that? Um, I enjoyed growing up in Columbia, Maryland, that, taught me a bit broader um, how to think about things. But I want us to think about how we became a melting pot, a salad bar, a rainbow flag, but it's really we're pixels, we're a blade of grass, we are an actual leaf. And I think we have the ability to define ourselves and to share ourselves as we see ourselves and invite people to see us that way. And I also want us to think about um, the grace of every person being a person. I think many times in our society, we want to assign and delegate. And, and I don't think in the long run that's healthy. And I think that's why some people fall apart because they realize there are so many things. So um, thank you for the platform message. And I, what I really was thinking about is that we can be any color and we can see ourselves in different ways. We should try to see how people want to see each other. Thanks. Morning. <laughs> I get that a lot. But, <laughs> so, but um, okay, so, so my name is Eric and uh, no, I'm not going to sing right now. No solos. Um, I, I should say this though, that, you know, it took me a while to decide to get up and walk up here to say something because, you know, uh, a lot of meetings I go to, they have this rule of step up, step back. Any of you know what I mean by that? You know, if you, if you're, if you're, if, 
if you're <laughs> if you're very talkative or very outgoing, step back and make space for those who aren't so talkative or so outgoing. You know, so I'm the guy that always telling step back. You know, but but anyway, I decided to come up. So 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 uh, anyway, uh, I, I'll give you a quick uh, anecdote. Uh, it was January 27th, 2017. Uh, the Catholic Church had postponed their annual uh, pro-life march from January 22nd to January 27th because they, they didn't want to bump heads with the women's march that had come out on January 21st of that year. Uh, so anyway, that day I was going to use my computer at a Starbucks and I walked into a Starbucks which, which used to exist on Ian, New Jersey. It's no longer there. but. Uh, there was one seat left in the house. It was at a four seat table. There were three Caucasian women uh, who were all very pregnant and uh, one, and the one seat was at their four seater table. So I asked if I could share, which was very unusual to some people to ask if you can share a table with strangers, but they, they allowed me to anyway. We talked for about 45 minutes. At the end of that conversation, as we got up to leave, one woman says to me, Eric, you know, when you first walked in, I saw a black man with his cap turned backwards. My cap's over there, you know, or middle-aged black man with his cap turned backwards. I had certain assumptions about you. And she says, after talking to you for almost an hour, those assumptions were turned on their head. I didn't ask what she assumed. I figured I'm going to take it for what it's worth. I'm going to leave it right there, you know. And, and, and uh, but I, I say all that to say, you know, the old adage. Don't judge a book by its cover, you know? Uh, so when I go out into the world, I, I have absolutely no hatred toward people of any other color, any other race. Many of them have something against me, you know? But in this instance, uh, it, it turned out okay because the, the person very politely told me, you know, that they had their biases against me, you know? But after speaking with me, their biases were, were flipped. You know, and, and so I, I guess I, my advice to you would be, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but always be willing to, to go out and, and speak to that stranger. And like the song says that, that we're going to sing in a few minutes, welcome the stranger, because who knows, you might find out something uh, about them that you like. You might find out that your assumptions were, were all wrong, uh, you know, and, and I've even had uh, my fellow black people tell me that, hey, uh, you don't have the resentment that many people of, of our race have because of what we've been through, you know, and uh, I should tell you very quickly that part of why that is, is what I told these women at this table in Starbucks a few years ago, which is, I'm actually not black. You know, I'm not even Afro-American. I'm Polish and Italian. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so uh, my, I, I am adopted. My parents had seven natural children and adopted 30. Uh, and uh, say, but that said, uh, I, I walk around with a Polish last name. And my mother, who's still living, he's 85 years old, she, she is Italian. You know, and, and so I, I actually didn't grow up in the black community, but, uh, you know, like that guy, you know, that you probably don't talk about, Moses, <laughs> uh, you know, went back to the people of, of my own race, you know, and, and there have been issues, you know, in terms of the cross-cultural, you know, 
issues. But 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 that said, uh, I'm going to close it out just by saying, you know, that it's 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 been a journey, you know, and and uh, just don't judge a book by its cover and always be willing to speak to the stranger. This morning has obviously provoked a lot of thoughts. I'm going to quickly skim through a few more comments that were in the chat. Judy Meyer says, you don't have to be the most right. I don't know the exact phrase, but that resonated strongly with me. Uh, Peter says, I really appreciated Casey's emphasis on the importance of language. Casey then demonstrated a language skill when they declared that although religious communities provide comfort to the suffering, it also provides discomfort to the privileged, even within the congregation. Maceo says, thanks, Casey. There is so much to say about what you spoke on. Anti-blackness crosses the globe. It's so refreshing to hear well how well in touch you are on this. I know it took a lot of work to understand blackness, sitting and listening to black people speak, reading the words and thoughts of black people. There was nothing as a black person that I would find pause with what you said. And Vasio adds, oh, and I love being black from the top of my head to the bottom of my, my feet. That's a song, Let's Go Choir. <laughs> so thank you for all who have shared. Obviously, there was a lot that came up this morning. I think obviously there's lots more to say and to learn and to do together um, in this vein. And um, it, we are now at the point where we are sharing not just our thinking, but our resources as well. Um, we share our split our Sunday collection between the operating budget of Wes and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. And this month we're sharing the plate with the Capoeira Spot, whose mission, whose vision is to empower the DC community with Capoeira's art form of liberation for generations to come. And for those who have, like me, did not know what what capoeira exactly was. It is an African-Brazilian martial art. It was created by African warriors who were enslaved in Brazil during colonial times and who disguised their martial arts as a dance using music and samba. It was used to preserve the lives, culture, and traditions of African peoples in Brazil and wielded to resist enslavement and later forms of anti-Black oppression. Capoeira arrived in the U.S. in the 1960s and has taken root all over the world. So let us take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. And for those who are able to respond, we offer several options. Um, as you can see, hopefully on the screen, there um, the number to give by text is 202-335-1885. You can donate online via tiny.cc slash westgives or by clicking the give button on our website, ethicalsociety.org. There's a basket at the back if you'd like to place cash or check there. And you can always, of course, mail something into the office. Thank you all for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the gifts of music from the chorus again.
much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Senior Leader Casey Slack and staff members in Dara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Tamana Baranji, and Maceo Thomas. Music coordinator Liam Morris, the musicians of the DC Labor Chorus, and, and our platform production team, so it's the tech team members, slide artists, Zoom chat, usher, in-person greeters whose names you will see on the closing credits slide. Um, after platform today, uh, please join the board of trustees and the finance team for a special membership meeting as we discuss the budget for next program year 2023-24. We need your input as we make some potentially hard decisions about our budget so we can balance it and be um, in a healthy financial position for the future. Um, we're not making any decisions or specific proposals. It's really a time to build our understanding and to talk about our values as they are reflected in our budget. Um, for those who are online, you can actually stay on this Zoom link for platform and it will allow you to um, be part of the, hear the presentation, et cetera, this morning. 
Um, quickly, the chorus is preparing for Spring Festival, which will be on April 30th. And so if you'd like to sing along. Um, we have rehearsals here on Wednesday nights at 7.30. You can, Perry will wave his arm and you can check in with Perry. Um, next Sunday, April 23rd, after Platform, the Community Relations Committee, or CRC, Joe's very favorite group, will offer an in-person workshop on respectful disagreeing. And the notion is how can we model productive disagreement and work towards understanding each other. We'll learn together how to engage in good faith receive feedback without defensiveness, and support each other's growth. That's it for our announcements today. As always, you can find information about opportunities to connect in the weekly news and notes email or on the calendar page of Wes's website, ethicalsociety.org. Thank you all for being part of our platform today, whether here in person, on Zoom, or watching later. And I invite you now into um, singing together our song of the month, which is um, Prayer Chant We Resist by Mark Miller. And so we're gonna have, lyrics should be up on the screen. And away we go. We resist, we refuse. To let hatred in, we rise up, we won't back down, we're in this till the end, we resist, we refuse, to let hatred in.
in the absence of synced lyrics, but we're all good. We do indeed resist, and we are in this in the end until all together. Um, if you are visiting today, please remember to check in with Maceo Thomas, our membership coordinator, or send him an email to introduce yourself. For those who wish to socialize online, normally you'd have virtual coffee hour, but I think we're going to be in a very few minutes going right into our special membership meeting. So um, may, I'm not sure if the tiny.cc slash West Coffee Hour link will even be open, but um, we encourage you to hang on to this and participate in our special membership meeting. And now our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, affirming the inherent worth of black life, resisting all oppression, and transforming the world through our care. Thank I'm gonna move away from the microphone. Thank you very much. Oh, shit.